Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzer, episode 20, where we're traveling to 1962 and the 19th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Robert Ward, for his opera, the Crucible. So, Andrew, I'm very curious if you've have, had any experience or knowledge of Robert Ward before this uh, preparations for today. So, I knew Robert Ward as the composer of The Crucible, and that's about oh, it. Perfect. <laughs> I know. So, I had experience. I think uh, I was talking to my wife about this. I think that we saw scenes from this in undergraduate, but that's about it. And so I knew his name. So it was one of those names that got kicked around. And whenever I teach the mid-century and opera in the mid-century, he's always on my list of here are operas composed, American operas composed, mid-20th century in the United States. And that's about it. Well, that's more than me because I, uh, <laughs> I think I've heard, I'd heard that he was one of those names that floats around, like you said, but I didn't associate him with the Crucible. I didn't really know much about the Crucible opera obviously i know the play uh, but yeah i didn't know much about it so uh, it was interesting to see and i think there's a lot of good stories that go along with robert ward and this opera together and arthur miller and the whole deal but uh yeah just reading about robert ward he had a pretty good training like a lot of our other pulitzer winners he was a juilliard and an eastman person studied with hansen and bernard rogers and bernard so we're going to see this pattern the the old boys club is striking again striking again here so now it's robert ward's time for the (laughs) pulitzer uh but uh yeah he so clearly comes from good training and uh, born in 1917 so is that it seems a little bit older than some of our other composer some of the other recent women i think he's basically of the same age as the first generation of composers that we talked about i mean he served yeah. in world war ii he's right. a leader in world war ii so he has that pedigree that we saw i mean even going back to the very first pulitzer we're talking about schumann and his experiences and writing this piece kind of coming out of the war i i think you see the same kind of experiences but now we have a piece that's refracting the cold war as opposed to the first, the second world war, as we saw before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And this is the, also the first non, well, I guess, first opera of the 1960s, I believe, since we're in a, uh, a new decade here and we've not had an opera. The last opera we had was Minotti, I believe. Yeah, the second yeah. Minotti. Second so Minotti. We saw the, 19, the 1950s was all about opera. Right. We had the Tons of operas. Douglas Moore, we had the two Minotti's. Uh, and now we had Vanessa with yeah, Vanessa. That's right. That's right. So now so. We're, we're moving into the sixties and I think we're going to see a change. So we've already talked about the end of the Chalmers Clifton era, which has now passed. <laughs> yep. I think we're also seeing a change in terms of what's going to be awarded the 1960s in, in the United States, right? United States history in the 1960s is one of, uh, in many ways, tumult and change. We see the same thing happening in the Pulitzer. It's going to reflect what's going on in the society because there's going to be a lot of change and a lot of upheaval and a lot of controversy around the Pulitzer in the 1960s. Yes. And just so stay tuned. Don't stop listening to us here for the next couple episodes because it's going to get really good soon. 
Uh, we know you're all upset about Chalmers Clifton being. I gone, know. There's more to come. <laughs> there's the more to come. Story. <laughs> so I'm curious. I have to ask you this: Did you read Crucible in high school? I did read Crucible in high school. Yeah. So did I. I think that must be a rite of passage uh, to do it. And actually, our uh, our engineer here, Tristan, did you? Uh, you can nod for us here. Did he? Did you read the? You did too. Okay. So uh, all right. So unanimous here. So and, continued uh, generations are reading the crucible in high school. Yeah, so that's that's important. I think that sets and frames this whole opera and the time really well. Like you were saying, a time of change. Uh, even though this the the play itself, as we get into it, is kind of a double allegory here. But thinking about the 1950s with all the the House on American activities and Joe McCarthy and things, it. it seems to have a resonance even in the early 60s too so well, maybe uh, that's where this, it should move go ahead and yeah and, and look at how that tells the story telling the story so we want to talk about witches i think it's time to talk about witches this is a new subject today for <laughs> hearing the pulitzers we're going to deal a little with witchcraft yeah <laughs> so this is an interesting as you were saying earlier this kind of double allegory um a, play by Arthur Miller, huge success, even when it came out. It's um, one of those kind of standards, I think, in the the theatrical canon of the United States from the moment it hit the stage, uh, because it tells this allegory of, you know, this point of American history of Salem witch trials, but also it is as much telling the story of the United States in the 1950s. Definitely. And part of it really hit home for Miller, who was asked to speak in front of the House on American Activities Committee. So he really felt this firsthand. And the, the as everybody knows, American history knows, that was a, a similar kind of thing where if you even had a whiff of anyone thinking you were a communist, then you were brought here. Many musicians, you know, Copeland, former Pulitzer Prize winner Aaron Copeland, uh, Pete Seeger, uh, famous musicians all had to go. And it, it, it kind of works well as this sort of paranoia and the the weirdness of just gossip and hearsay and it seems like it, on the face of it at first i would think well is this really a good operatic it seems like such a good play and so how did this even come together and it, it turns out that arthur miller had a hand in some of this and he wasn't going to just let robert ward just do what he wants well and he even thought arthur miller even thought Originally, he should write an opera, mm -hmm. uh, and there's a great, a great story that he goes to uh, Mark Blitzstein, a very famous um, composer, and said, "Hey, Mark, how long did it take you to learn to write the music for an opera?" And Blitzstein says, "Oh, hell, Arthur, I don't know. How long did it take you to learn to write a good play?" And Miller <laughs> says, "Oh, about twenty years." And Blitzstein <laughs> says, "Well, it'll take you about that long again." <laughs> wow. <laughs> so this 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 notion of, um, in some ways, he thought it was already inherently operatic. Mm -hmm. Although he ended up writing a play because he didn't know how to write a good opera. So that was already kind of baked in there, I think, whenever Robert Ward decided this was going to be the next operatic project. And so in 1959, uh, this is where things kind of happened here, where in the New York, this was premiered and uh, produced by the New York City Opera. And so there was a rehearsal and uh, one of the opera's lead singers for another Ward uh, opera, I believe, uh, was asked Ward if he'd be interested in working on another project. And this guy saw 
the off-Broadway production of The Crucible. And so they thought, hey, well, we never saw it, but this might be a good thing. So it was Ward and Bredis Bernard Stambler. And so they went and saw The Crucible and then invited Miller. Uh, Miller, this is a great quote. You had a good quote before, but this is another one. And so Miller was impressed with, with Ward's work and Stambler. Uh, but he said, I have to approve the final libretto. Miller's lawyer asked, Ward, why would you want to have an opera of a play? And Ward replied, well, Puccini's heirs and publishers are still making millions every year on the opera based on it. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you just, it's always about the dollars. <laughs> well, here we're talking about the, the, the McCarthy era and House on American Activities Committee, but we're still going to be talking about capitalism. We're still talking oh, yeah. about the idea that you're going to write an opera because you're going to let someone make an opera of your play because you're going to get more money off of it. Sure, sure. So that's basically what happened. And then uh, Miller approved it in the Ford Foundation grant, and hence the Crucible from 1961 was. But it's important to note that Miller didn't Miller didn't write the libretto. Yes, yes. So So he approved. He had approval of what would be going in the opera, but the actual libretto was written by uh, Bernard Stambler, collaborator of Ward. Yep, Bernard Mm -hmm. Stambler. So. The libretto was not written by Miller, although it is very much based on that play. Well, maybe we should go now behind this and see what's going on in the, the music. Behind the notes. All right, so Dave, I want to start and just ask, as you're listening to this, what was your just kind of gut first impression since you had no background of this opera? Right, right. Well, part of the problem I, when I study opera, I want to see it. And there's very few videos of this that you can really see. There's one on YouTube that's put together by Purchase, uh, SUNY Purchase, and they did a recording of it actually that you can listen to. But there's no subtitles, and even in English, it helps to to see what what's going on. So I, it was kind of hard to follow. Um, musically, I was trying to compare it to Minotti because that's our mm-hmm. closest American comparison, and I thought. For me, this one was a little slow and monotonous until it got going towards the end. And and even then, it was a little like sort of I could smell it coming a mile away, the, the type of harmony and type of dramatic features. But I found it less melodic than Minotti. It was a lot of speech singing, kind of talking, talk sing and drones. So a little a little bit slow from my first impression. How about you? Well, I think the the focus you just said on more speech-like singing as opposed to, I mean, Minotti, we talked about this when we had both of the Minotti operas uh, on earlier podcast episodes. The Minotti is all about these gorgeous lines that just kind of soar and singers love the music because it gives a chance <laughs> for them to show off the beauty of tone that they can create. You don't have many of those moments in this opera. It is very much more like uh, people speaking. It just happens to have a little bit more definite pitch. Um, I think that for me, the musical interest in the opera comes from the harmonic structure and the different um, types of musical styles of American music that he borrows from and embeds throughout the opera. And it is pretty well crafted at least there's certain recurring intervals uh there's a book that i was consulting that i know you know as well by robert paul colt called and we'll we'll link this to this book robert ward's the crucible creating an american musical nationalism and 
there's the the interval of the tritone diabolus and musica almost a little too obvious that it would a be a little bit on the nose <laughs> a little bit on the nose <laughs> yeah which like is the about the devil i think i'll use the tritone i think i'll use the tritone yeah and every time there's anything related to witchcraft or discussion you hear the tritone seeping in and and dissonant crunch crunchiness uh, but then there are i mean there are some lyrical moments i think they're and and a lot the author Colt here makes a big point of how things kind of clear out towards the end of the opera in the C major bringing more tonality back kind of when John Proctor has realized what his fate is going to be and how this will end uh, but uh, yeah it's a little bit a little bit obvious I don't know I, I know there's a lot of craft and you know a lot of the the author here puts together a lot of uh, Colt puts together a lot of the music and things but uh, it doesn't hold together all that well to me for without seeing it well i think that um what holds it together is the quality of the play itself so the so source material those, the yeah. source material this is one of those that the arthur miller play is so good mm -hmm. and so dramatic and so well structured and has such momentum that it carries a lot for the opera. It carries a lot of weight for the opera. Uh, in terms of the operas that we've talked about in the Pulitzer, I have to go back to the console to find another opera that had this kind of, I think, propulsive, clear story. And I, in my view, it's as successful a story. I mean, with mm -hmm. Vanessa, with Saint of Bleecker Street, those were both interesting. Um, they also seemed really European. All, all yes. these operas seem really European. And I think the subtitle of that of that book, the cult book that you're talking about, uh, American Musical Nationalism, I think is is appropriate for this particular opera, that it seems to have more kind of American sounds. And this points to what I was speaking of earlier, this idea of borrowing from all these American musical traditions. So mm -hmm. there's blues in here, right? There's here a section I want to uh, play real briefly for us. Um, this moment uh, at the end of the first act where you have basically this kind of um, hymn-like structure, this like very American Protestant hymnody, uh, and it's kind of set on top of what really is kind of an American march. So pulling into that tradition as well, the kind of American band tradition that you know so well from Charles Ives. Yes. Uh, but, but juxtaposing those in, in much a way that I think Ives might have done if Ives wrote in a more straightforward tonal kind of context. So we can listen a little to that. Very nice. I like the uh, seven-eight meter there. With well, I the, think that's the interesting thing about yeah. it is that it doesn't seem odd in context, but no. then you start counting it, and you're going, "Oh, that's really interesting." Kind of 
bringing in a more modern context with the rhythm, while the harmonies and the melodies are very much of an earlier century. Mm-hmm. So, and that you know, you bring up the whole idea of American nationalism. Uh, obviously, the, the musical aspects, but certainly the the source material is about as American as we've had so far. Because uh, even Giants on the Earth, Giants of the Earth was immigrants coming, so that wasn't quite you know from an American source. So I think it does make sense that that would be a part of it here, and then including blues or uh, New England hymnody or different kinds of American uh, styles to go with it gives it more of a that kind of sound and that sort of ethos to it. Um, yeah, I think that that openness, that embracing of mm-hmm. all these musical styles is pretty typically American, especially during this time period. Uh, and it's interesting to see the Pulitzer recognizing this style where the operas they've recognized before were very much in the European tradition. Mm-hmm, very much so. Do you think it's also American to have, uh, well, definitely, I'm answering my own question here, conspiracy theories and uh, and witch hunts and all this stuff. We just finished having a president who talked about witch hunts all the time on himself. So... Yeah, conspiracy theories are a very American thing, aren't they? They are. They really are. So it kind of fits in this place. Mom, apple pie, and conspiracy theories <laughs> to be the American way now. That's right. Exactly. So, I'm. What do you think of the? You know, if, if you don't know the story, you can. We can post the the whole synopsis. But I wanted to talk a little bit just about the ending of it because it it's it is pretty dramatic, and that mm-hmm. you have a moment where. John Proctor, one of the main characters, is going to save himself and confess to the, the witchcraft and all this stuff. Uh, but then at the last minute, he changes. He, they said, oh, sign, sign your name here and agree to this. And he refuses. And then his wife, I believe it's his wife, uh, Mary Proctor, then she says, oh, she's like, she knows what's going to happen. She's like, oh, no, this is it. And then he gets taken away to be hung or whatever at the end. So uh, what do you think of the ending or just the kind of the, the denouement of it? The story is incredibly powerful. Musically, I think this is again, so we talked about the tritone being a little on the nose. <laughs> In terms of the music, when that happens, he drops into C major, which is yep. you know, all the white keys. It's like, look how pure I am because I'm choosing not to do that. As he gives that soliloquy, he says that he's not going to do it. So again, it's one of the things that it's effective. It's also the obvious choice. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's, as I was listening to the opera, that's what I kept coming back to, that it's a it's an effective opera, but it's on rails. It never <laughs> goes where you don't expect it to go. Right. And, and so that, this might be a good time to see, because it's often listed as one of the most popular American operas. So uh, maybe we should see if people notice that or if they if that was one of the reasons why it's so popular is that it just kind of uh, hits us here you don't have to think too hard about it or it's or it's based on its good source material so let's uh, go into the hit or miss and discuss the the uh, situation here and critics reviews hit or miss well we always start with the premiere which is usually in new york and again it is as we talked about the new york opera um so Harold Schoenberg, who we've heard from many times, reviewed the opening production, and he actually compared it to Douglas Moore, 
early Pulitzer winner who had The Wings of the Dove, which two weeks earlier had been premiered. So he had a little bit of comparison to names that we've seen before. Don't you wish we could have heard something by Douglas Moore? It would have been interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Hidden in the archives. Yes. This this paragraph I thought was particularly uh, incisive to how Schoenberg received this opera. He said, Mr. Ward is an experienced composer whose music fails to bear the impress of a really inventive mind. Melodically, his ideas had little distinction, nor is there much to convey the hysteria and terror of the Salem witch trials around which the play and libretto are based. The powerful subject cried out for intensity, for brutality and shock, whatever idiom it was couched in. Instead, we had musical platitudes. Ooh. Ooh. That's little not even, there. Little, it's not even damning with faint praise here. That's kind no, of that's one of the most um, intensely negative reviews we've seen of a Pulitzer winner. Yeah, over yeah. our over our time. Wow. Well, that's not quite the the view of the Pulitzer board because we have a fairly positive review from. Uh, this is not so no longer Chalmers Clifton, as we've said. Uh, we have a new secretary of the Pulitzer Prize Advisory Board, John Hohenberg. So we'll see his name quite a bit. But in the music committee report put together by Paul Henry Long and William Bergsma again, uh, they recommended two pieces. And so the Crucible was the winner, obviously. And he says, or they say, after examining a large number of entries, 41, to the uh, Pulitzer Prize Committee, we gradually narrowed down the list to two works, Robert Ward's opera, The Crucible, and Ben Weber's Piano Concerto. In the the opinion of the music committee, Mr. Ward's opera is a distinct contribution to our native literature for the lyric stage. While it is perhaps somewhat traditional in style, it represents the finest qualities of drama and music. Its technical quality is also very high. Mr. Ward shows a very fine sense for dramatic expression in music. So how does that uh, strike you compared to what uh, Schoenberg and then our own discussions? I see them keying into something that we thought about, which was the national nature of it, that this was a, an American opera. And so they wanted to celebrate an American opera and one that was incredibly successful dramatically. Mm-hmm. Right. I, again, I think that they are recognizing what we saw, that this is an opera that the story, the play upon which it is based, is so powerful that it can carry a lot in terms of the way that you experience this opera. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think they they yeah they point out the native aspect of it, um, but they also say something that we also said too, which is it, it's perhaps somewhat traditional in style, and maybe by traditional they are looking they that you could kind of read between the lines saying. A little bit obvious here. It's well done, but a little bit, you know, not that revolutionary or anything new here. There's just a good piece. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with a good piece. Uh, but that's maybe what they're getting at. So so I don't want to give anyone the idea that this was not a successful opera just because we have the New York Times. Uh, in some <laughs> ways, that was the outlier. Um, in the review for the New York Post, Harriet Johnson, who was running for that, said, uh, Ward and Stambler have produced an absorbing music drama. The play builds tension in the manner of a thriller, and so does the opera. It is rhythmically jagged enough to slash as it moves, yet it is singable. 
And then Miles Kastendiek, who we've talked about many times, yes. on the New York Journal American, said, just as the story has its consonants and dissonance, so Ward's music matches this in sound. This is traditional operatic writing shaped within a contemporary idiom. Opera goers must again adjust to further proof that the lyric theater is a play sung. Miller can be pleased that the music enhances the drama, while Ward can bow for accomplishing what some might consider impossible. The Crucible is a notable achievement in the annals of native opera. So they really like this native opera. That's well, I think we see terminology. The, yeah. two, two things there, right? The native opera, the idea this is an American opera, mm-hmm. and then the fact that this play is so powerful yeah. that you follow it through. Well, can I read just one more really negative one? Because they're always it's always more fun to read the negative ones. Absolutely. Yeah. This is from uh, Alan Kriegsman of the Washington Post, who said, though there are no tunes one could call memorable, the music is sufficiently melodious and the scoring achieves its effects with skill. On the whole, however, effects are all that is there. Not once does the music rise to the dramatic electricity of the Miller play. The score's saccharine veneer, in fact, rules out all the tragic implications of the crucible and reduces it to rather crass melodrama. <laughs> saccharine veneer. Saccharine veneer. Well, I'll like give that. one more because this opera did take off in terms of being performed regularly. So it had many returns, not like um, and we talked about Barber's Vanessa kind of disappearing for a while. Mm-hmm. This is one of those operas that entered the repertory and has stayed, especially amongst college performances. It's rarely produced by colleges, um, if not as much by professional companies anymore. But um, 1968, New York City Opera performed it again. Patrick Smith at that time writing for High Fidelity magazine said, uh, nor is the opera helped by Robert Ward's pallid score, precisely <laughs> the proper shade of inoffensive gray that foundations and awards committees seize on as significant manifestations of American opera. Oh, they don't write like that anymore. Now everything's a standing ovation and wonderful. So it's good that they have some. Uh, but it's interesting that we have such uh, a a divergence in terms of reaction to this opera. Right. Most of the operas that we've seen in the Pulitzer, people are ecstatic about it and then they forget about it. Yeah. Here's an opera that has remained, but it also has remained kind of controversial, whether it's an amazing opera or it's pallid and inoffensively gray. (laughs) Saccharine. Saccharine. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I find it interesting that a couple of our operas that we've talked about so far have are really geared or work well in smaller companies or for college groups, things like that. That really, the Vanessa is, I think, the only one that's up to the level of the Met or was was at the Met. So that it's just sort of an interesting thing here that they're just the level and the scope. And I, I you know, as we decide if this is a hit or miss, I think uh, there it would be worth putting it on just to see how it holds up. Uh, even even today. So is this a hit or a miss for you? <laughs> oh, this is a hard one. <laughs> because I yeah. really do dramatically find it very compelling. I think the craft is very strong. I don't know if, because it's so obvious, I don't know if it would sustain <laughs> my interest over multiple hearings. Mm-hmm. So I would say that it's a qualified hit. Okay. Okay. How about you? Well, I, I have to give an incomplete because I haven't seen it. So 
uh, it's hard to you sort of you really have to see an opera i think to to really get the full experience but right, based I'll on let you revise but i'm yeah. going to pin you down hit or miss. okay okay uh i would probably say it's a miss because i'd rather see the play instead of the opera based on what i've heard so far i think i'd rather go go to see the play on a theater and that would probably be more dramatically compelling to me uh, i'm not sure from what I've heard that the music adds a lot to the story already as it is. So for me, it would probably then be until I've seen it, I'll say it's a miss for me. Well, at least we know that it's been performed enough that Arthur Miller's return on investment was pretty good. I'm sure <laughs> oh, definitely. his estate is still making money. <laughs> no, doubt. Well, that's, no doubt. That's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links in a short bibliography where you can read more about Robert Ward, and we'll be sure to link the book that we've referred to several times in this episode. Also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at H Pulitzers for links between episodes. And finally, join us next episode, where we'll return to a familiar face who won the Pulitzer the first time in 1958. He's our third double winner, Samuel Barber, this time for his first piano concerto. Until then, keep listening. Keep listening.